from Facebook to the entire world. This is Jonathan Fife with the Office of Technologies and a Gems Talk featuring the inimitable Caitlin Krolikowski. How's that? Action. Excellent. Good. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Yeah. So, th thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, for another Gems Talk. I am, This is Jonathan Fight. I am extremely excited uh, today to talk, as you just heard, with Caitlin from uh, the Purchase Area Health Connections Program of the Purchase District Health Department in Kentucky. Um, and we're going to get into all of that. But I just want to set the stage on what today is about and why I'm extremely excited. And you can see on screen here um, some slides that Caitlin's going to go through real quick. And we really want to lean today in on the connections bit. Um, behind me is a slide or a, a background from the National Association of Mobile Integrated Health Providers. Um, and this is adapted, stolen, co-opted uh, from a, a presentation I did with that organization a couple weeks ago. Shout out to Martha and her team for some really amazing work leaning in again on the integration part of what we think this industry, this discipline profession needs to do and be um, as we look to cross-cut what it means to take care of patients who really need lots of different resources and lots of different types of expertise in order to make them better, improve their access, reduce the total cost of care and the burden on all the different facets of the healthcare system. Um, and so today, I want to talk with Caitlin and have her talk about what it means to, to be part of an ecosystem of care. We're, we're going to lean into that idea of integration and connection, the Rosetta Stone, as you saw in the title to today's uh, talk about the Rosetta Stone, for those who are not familiar, is really a key to understanding multiple languages. Uh, how it, it, it's, a, it's a way to translate a physical rock that has different languages written on it. Uh, and scholars have used it for over 200 years to understand the languages they didn't previously understand by being able to translate across them. Um, and that's something that seems to have been missing from our industry, but is really coming to the fore now uh, in the uh, post-COVID, shall we say, era. So I've said already too much. I'm going to turn to Caitlin. Caitlin, hi. Wonderful to see you. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I'm Caitlin Rolkowski. I'm the Network Director for the Purchase Area Health Connections, which is a regional health coalition that serves nine counties in far western Kentucky. And I'm the Director of Administrative Services for the Purchase District Health Department, which is a health department um, that serves five counties in far western Kentucky. And so by far western Kentucky, I mean far western Kentucky. Like, it's pretty much at that very, very small end um, right below Illinois. So uh, the Purchase Area Health Connections is a regional coalition um, that started informally in about 2011 and took on more of a formal um, coalition aspect in 2016. We applied for some HRSA grants. We were lucky enough to be awarded those HRSA grants. And we started our very first initiative, which was our transitional care team. And so since that point, sorry, it's not going. There we go. So since that point, we have two very large initiatives, and it's our transitional care team, which is our CHW program, and our opioid task force that is broad spectrum um, cascade of care for opioid use disorder and substance use disorder. But so today we're going to talk solely about the CHW program. And the CHW program is a community health worker program. In this fairness, I'll, prob I'll probably tug you back a little bit towards the opioid one that as well. That's that's very near and dear to my heart and a lot of other people. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
family. I, I love the opioid task force. That's like my baby on this as well. So um, with the diagnoses, we started with a grant that we saw COPD and pneumonia patients from two hospitals. Um, and then we expanded to see COPD, pneumonia, and heart failure at those same two hospitals. And we received another grant to serve two additional hospitals. And then we expanded to all of the diagnoses. And so we serve these eight counties with our CHW program. And so a big part of our CHW program um, is it really is just focused on social determinants of health. So the way that our CHW program works is that we have four partner hospitals and we have identified risk factors for readmissions. And so a partner hospital refers a patient to our CHW program and our CHWs go and they meet them in the hospital and then they enroll them after discharge. And you know, at that point they start doing home visits. And so they do, we have a 30-day program and a 90-day program. And so in the 30-day program, there is three home visits and one phone call. In the 90, there is about eight home visits and four phone calls that are mixed into that. And so they see them consistently. And there is a bunch of different purposes of it. But one of the biggest things that they focus on is health literacy. So that very first meeting is about understanding the discharge orders. You know, what is going on? How do they feel? Um, helping them to make sure that they're getting their follow-up care. Um, are they going to the PCP? And the, in the clients that graduate our program, 88% have said that they have made their follow-up appointments with the PCP, which is, you know, that's a great number. And 98% have felt more confident um, being at home after graduating. And so those are, you know, two things that we're very happy about. So um, let's look at the program background and then hop back to the social determinants of health. So we've got the four hospitals in Western Kentucky. We started, we launched in 18. So we started all of our planning, we got all of our partnerships, we got all of our MOUs signed, and then we actually launched our program in 2018. And since this has happened, the way that the Purchase Area Health Connections functions is we have a, like a board of directors, um, and then we have different initiatives. So we actually have a variety of different initiatives, and each one of those initiatives has either like a project director or a facilitator, and they're all based off of our community. And so within each one of those initiatives, people have different, there's different partners. Like the opioid task force, um, there's about 80 different partners that we work with throughout the scope of it. Um, and then, you know, with the CHW, we work with, you know, skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, all of the community-based organizations pretty much because we're constantly referring to them. You know, we collaborate and talk with the PCPs um, on that as well. And so we've had a total of... Um, 1466 unique referrals and um, 918 unique enrollments. So a lot of times people get referred to us multiple times because you know those are high-risk patients. They go back to the hospital and even if they've graduated our program, they'll get re-referred because the idea is to keep them out of the hospital, meet their social determinant of health needs, and for them to um, accomplish a health goal. And so this is our, you know, we have to have our funding language in there. Um, but if we go back to the social determinants of health, we know that so much of health is actually based on the things that happen outside of the hospital. They happen outside of the doctor's office. Um, and so what our CHWs do, and there's this misconception about CHWs, I think, a lot. Um, they are absolutely not clinical. They're absolutely not medical. And they don't do anything that is clinical or medical. What they do is they really navigate the community to meet the social determinant of health. And what this allows is for a lot of collaboration between partnerships because there's not going to be that much competition in it. Like we can work with home health, we can work with SNFs, we can work with a community paramedicine program because there's 
and there's things that these other programs are able to do, and it just creates a comprehensive level of care for each one of the clients that are referred to any of those programs. Because with a community paramedicine, you know, there's a medical aspect to that that a CHW just cannot deliver. But what a CHW can do is help with everything else that's around it. So, you know, a community paramedicine program, it helps with, you know, some of that aftercare and that medical aspect. But say um, the client really needs some help, you know, finding some durable medical equipment, we have more time, more availability to help with that. So we can kind of supplement, not supplement, but yeah, supplement what's going on. Yeah, Yeah, like (laughs) supplement what's going on there. And I'm going to bring us back to that. Keep, keep going. But obviously, when we consider who the audience of this particular conversation is, we really are thinking about folks whose daily existence for the last 50-plus years on the EMS side and a lot longer than that on the fire side has oriented around movement of vehicles, apparatus, lights, sirens, that sort of thing, right? And I think I want to – we're going to come back. I want to let you keep going. But I really want us to dig into – how the collaboration you're talking about, and you know, you, you mentioned community prayer medicine, which is itself an evolution of mm-hmm. mobile medicine, right? So mm-hmm. how we're really sort of planning for an, inter- an integrated future uh, where folks are, rather than saying, I have to own it, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, they're basically saying, what are we best at? What are you best at? And how can we, how can we align those together? And that kind of communication is so rare. Um, mm-hmm. That again, I think I hope we will, we're going to put you up on a bit of a pedestal here to talk about how you managed to do that. So let, let's come back to that uh, because I do think it's a model. It's a model that a lot of people can follow. Um, but again, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to stick a pin in that. And so I wrote down, and we're going to come back to that. So give us some more of the stats and, and the successes here, and sort of how you chose. I, I do want to ask you. You mentioned about the community health needs that you've assessed. What's the mechanism by which, particularly, or I think you said nine counties. Um, how did you surface what those needs are and basically get everybody onto an even enough playing field or, you know, mm-hmm. same sheet of music, whatever analogy we want, that everybody said, all right, these clearly are the issues. These are the mm-hmm. ones where we're going to get the most uh, juice for our squeeze. <laughs> so I think that was really something that was helpful way back when, when the idea of Purchase Area Health Connections first started kind of floating. So we're very fortunate in that we have a lot of different community coalitions and county health coalitions. And so um, we've got, you know, different hospitals and health departments, and we're all required to do a community health needs assessment. Whether or not we have to do a community health improvement plan is, you know, kind of depending on um, regulation and stuff like that. But so in about 2011, everyone was like, "Why we're all doing community health needs assessments. Why don't we just kind of streamline this so that we're not duplicating work? And then that's where community uh, purchase area health connections really started. Because okay, let, me, at- let me pause it for a quick second. They, the, the nine counties, did you guys work together before the purchase area health district? Does that encompass those counties to begin with? Or did so you guys the, come together? Right, so the purchase district health department serves five counties. And so there's eight counties in the purchase area region. And then um, with the OBO task force, we added an additional county that was right outside because they had needs that aligned with our needs. Okay. So that's kind of how we did that. And so um, in our area, Paducah, Kentucky, is kind of that giant regional hub. It's our largest city and our largest county, and it has the most access to healthcare. Okay. And so there's two large regional hospitals here. And so then there's also the Purchase District Health Department, and a lot of our community-based services are located in Paducah or McCracken County. 
And so everyone was having to do these community health needs assessments. And so at that point, that's when people started really streamlining partnerships to say, let's not duplicate. Let's do what we're best at. Let's leverage our partnerships. Let's, you know, do this together. And so that's kind of when it started formulating. And now we're at a point where um, when the community health needs assessments start coming out, we partner with a lot of organizations. We look over what do we want on the survey? What does each partner need to be on the survey? And then we send the survey out and everyone has access to the data. They pull the data that they need for their counties that they serve because we all serve slightly different populations in slightly different counties with some overlap. And so that's kind of how that works. And so when Purchase Area Health Connections was formed, it was like, we really need to be serving the whole region because our region, you know, we are very rural. So that means that a lot of people have to drive for jobs, for school, for groceries, for healthcare. And so everyone's driving all over all of these counties. And so it doesn't stop at a county line and health will never stop at a county line. And so that's why we targeted our region. And even with that, you know, we know that people seek services in Illinois, Missouri, and Tennessee. Those are the border states that are right there. And the further south you get in our region, um, the more likely they're to seek services in Tennessee. And that's also something else about our region. We have, like, hardly any specialists. So we are have very limited access to care. So just across the spectrum, there are not enough doctors. There are not enough clinics. There's just there's not enough specialists. So depending on... If you have a chronic illness, you might have to go to Owensboro, which is two and a half hours. You might have to go to Nashville, which is two hours. So it really depends on that. And if you have some um, real bad trauma or something like that, like you're going to have to seek services elsewhere. They're just not available here. And so we've always had a huge barrier um, to access the care. And as you can imagine, since we're so rural, transportation is a huge barrier. It is one of our largest barriers, and it stops people from accessing services. And um, especially when it comes to the cost of it. So we have like, you know, two um, public transportation services, three, one only stays in one county, the other kind of go um, across counties, but they're very expensive and it takes all day. So if you go from our poorest, farthest county to where you can access medical services in Kentucky and you can get the most, it's $80. Like a round trip is gonna be $80 and you are gonna be doing it all day long. And so that has always been a barrier in accessing the services. And health literacy is one of our largest barriers. And that is really what uh, we focus on with the Community Health Worker Program. And I think that is why we're able to cohesively collaborate with so many programs because we're focusing on a core problem that impacts all the other programs and actually is going to help increase their success because an informed and educated client that can advocate for themselves and explain what their needs are is going to be a successful and happy client and you're going to have a successful and happy program. Awesome. Yeah. And so, okay, again, there's just, there's just so much there. So have you found, you mentioned about medical transportation or about transportation, for example, are you yeah. finding that there is a role or engagement? Again, we think about the, the role of mobile medicine, EMS, Etc. You know, folks who, who transport patients for a living. Um, what has been the relationship that you found, or the the willingness, the desire to leverage these sort of organically, naturally mobile health professionals that can augment what you're doing? Okay, I kind of want to. I, I didn't want to. I didn't mean to disrupt where, where you were going with with some of the statistics, but there's so yeah. much richness there. Yeah, I, I wrote down here, for example, 90, I think you said 98% of folks feel more 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's tremendous. And especially when we think about, you know, the, the, the convergence in, in on the mobile medicine side of the opioid problem, for example, I, I promised we would go back to that. I will tug us back to that. Uh, and oh, I, I do want to talk about why that's so important to you as well. So let's get to that in a second. But one thing that has been really interesting as I've been doing a lot of work on the substance use disorder side of things is very few people want to be addicted, right? It's not fun to be hooked. Um, and, and I think that's a, a general social misconception in a lot of places, this idea that gee, it's recreational stuff that people just start, you know, realize they don't want to stop. No, it has nothing, almost nothing to do with that, right? These are folks who got injured or got sick or got prescribed or overprescribed and, you know, the, the drug did its thing and now they've got a problem, right? And so the there seems to be that there could be a real opportunity when you look at the plight of mobile medical professionals who go out to deal with overdose, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of burden that's on them, right? This idea that, for example, if you're going to wake somebody up, if you give them naloxone and it works, which would be great, well, let's assume that you wake somebody up and then the person basically slugs them in the face, curses mm-hmm. at them and runs away, right? That's a negative for everybody. And the person's alive, but they're angry. The person who's out there just expended the resource of getting somebody you know, utilizing their time, their equipment, the medication, and possibly put themselves in physical harm's way, right? (laughs) And at the end of the day, there's so much that you've described that's underneath that experience, right? This idea that not only can we get somebody into a healthier environment to be good, but this person who intervenes to save you, for example, is not, their goal is not to bust your high, like that's not, that's not why they're there, right? And at the same time, they actually lose out economically by the fact that there's no transport associated with that if they're not in a community paramedicine type of environment where something else is helping to survive. So it's lose, lose, lose pretty much all over the place. And yet if you were to bridge the the relationship between your work in terms of improving these folks' uh, ability to say, I need help before I'm in dire straits, and then you can work with your community partners like EMS, who would otherwise be responding hot, right, to deal with an emergency situation, and now they can be there perhaps proactively, because you know as the navigator to say, look, these people have a tendency to be in this location at this time of day. And so go there, be there. Um, That's a conversation we're actually having a lot at the data level, right, that data can inform you of where your population's going to be and what the trends tend to be, in, you know, because someone's standing on the corner doing the nod uh, at a certain time of day. So talk to me about how that kind of community engagement either is happening or could happen in, in, in a region that, as you mentioned, is quite spread out. But at the same time, you've done a lot of work to understand what and where those needs are, it sounds like. So with our opioid task force, um, we have a couple different things going on, but one of the things that we're really pushing is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with ODMAP. Um, ODMAP with, you know, we want people to be on ODMAP and it only works if we're all on it. Because the idea is that there needs to be enough data inputs for us to be able to see that hotspot analysis, have real time, be able to do spike alerts, uh, which would allow not only the community to know that there is, um, you know, an increased possibility of overdosing from maybe a bad bath. It allows paramedics, it allows law enforcement to be prepared to have more Narcan on hand. 
um, to have whatever PPE that they need and to be able to respond and know that they're going to respond for something like that and just be in that frame of mind. So that spike alert on ODMAP, it's you know invaluable, but not enough organizations are actually signing on to that. In Kentucky, I know that the state is working um, with the um, KY Stars um, and some EMS and the KY Ops to you know kind of build that into um, you know where when you put information integrate it into ODMAP essentially so that even though they're not logged in on ODMAP that data is still getting there so then those spike alerts still get out and so that's something that you know we're really hoping to get out there um, we also are working with a pre-arrest diversion program with um, McCracken County sheriffs and um, they developed badges of hope which is very similar to the angel initiative except for the angel initiative a lot you have to go to a post all right, well, what's, transportation. The, what's, the, what's the angel initiative? Right, so the angel initiative is you go, it's an initiative by the Kentucky State Police. And so it means if you get to a post, they will help get you into treatment. But you have to get to a post. We have one post in eight counties. So it's a great program, but it's also not available to people that lack transportation in the first place. Copy. And so um, Badges of Hope is a program that's similar to that, but the sheriffs will go and get you. So you can call them and say, I need, I'm in a crisis, I need treatment. Awesome. They will navigate it, they'll go pick you up, and they will drop you off. And they will help make sure that the treatment provider that you go to, if you don't have insurance, um, they're not going to charge you. And so, and with that program um, as well, is the sheriff office offers Narcan to family members. And so through our grants, like, you know, they have Narcan and um, fentanyl test strips and other resources that go to family members. And within that program, too, one of the things we do is we do trainings on fentanyl and Narcan for law enforcement, EMS, fire departments, um, community. You know, we have community hubs for Narcan. We're working right now on a jail program so that people that leave the jail um, that are in there for a drug charge and have a high risk receive Narcan. And then everyone else receives education on how to get Narcan. And awesome. so that's kind of the way that we're um, operating it here. And then one of our community partners um, has a quick response team. And so when an overdose happens and, you know, the law enforcement in two of our counties are informed of it, they coordinate, and they're going to spread it out to their counties, but they've just piloted it. They coordinate with the quick response team so that a peer support specialist can go and meet the person that overdosed and offer services and treatment and things like that. And so, so that's what, kind of, Go ahead. Yeah, no, one thing that I'm, I'm working on doing, and uh, it's probably a conversation more for another time, but from a technology perspective, I think it's very, very interesting. And I wonder if you're doing stuff like this, since you mentioned all again all these different partners coming together willingly, right? Utilizing, utilizing, consolidating data um, and things like OD maps. Uh, one thing that I've been very interested in doing from a community paramedicine perspective um, is the ability to attach identity to the OD maps, uh, and that's a very sensitive thing to do. Okay. Clearly, mm-hmm. um, but but we also find that there there's an interesting. An interesting set of possibilities that emerges if you can do it in a way that is compliant with the SAMHSA laws, right? That that makes sure that you are protecting people, but at the same time, where you have communities that folks are seeking out substances, mm-hmm. the ability to know before they have a problem, right? And again, it, it, to me, this ties very much in with the harm reduction movement, where we have to realize that people aren't necessarily going to make the best decisions for themselves, especially when they're in pain, or especially when they're needing things and right to the degree that if we acknowledge the fact that folks will seek out things that 
if you know that Caitlin has been seen in a facility or a set of facilities brought in by multiple services or multiple pathways in a given time period, maybe someone needs to have a conversation with Caitlin, right? And so to the degree that that is where, again, I think I'd love to hear how you guys are addressing it, not just in OPMS, but in general, kind of drop a net over region phenomenon. But that's something that a lot of places need and aren't doing. And I'm hearing about it in lots of different states, really from the southeast to the west coast. Um, this idea that if you, for example, get transported by multiple ambulance services, um, and then another time maybe your friend drops you off a block away or you take the bus, et cetera, et cetera, you fall off the grid, right? There is not really – we don't have a great tracking system in this country because we don't have – nationalized healthcare, right? So you don't have this problem in Britain, Australia, Canada, other Commonwealth countries that have nationalized healthcare. Instead, over there, you have really long lines to get care and you know all the other things that, that come with nationalized healthcare. But no one really, you can't lose track of somebody. Here, we can lose track of somebody. And so I wonder, how would you feel about the idea of leveraging technology data, truly, to be able to say, I see you. I see you where you are. I'm not judging you. Right, like I realize that you know your your social determinants are a separate question from whether or not I want to keep you from dying, right? And I want to address those social determinants through the partnerships that you're talking about. But at the same time, to the degree that OD Maps is a blip on a screen, right? And the fact that you have a bad, I, I, I'll give you an example. I think is really interesting. Let's assume you know that there's a bad batch in the community because mm -hmm. you're starting to see things, but. Again, does that mean if you know that you have community members in the community in, in that community who have these underlying needs, mm -hmm. social determinants, is there a way, thinking off the top of my head, to send an alert out to those people on their phone, for example, yeah, yeah. that would say, by the way, we know we've seen you and we know that you may use and you need to be aware that there's a tainted batch out there right now. You need to be extra careful. Like, you laugh there, so I'm assuming you yeah, so, so we've um, really thought about that. I know other states have thought about that um, and the way that they it's do so it. It's so sensitive. <laughs> yeah, it's so sensitive. And um, I don't know what the right way to do it is. I I'm, we'll I am don't necessarily I think that there should be a database of everyone that's used drugs or anything like that where we're, you know, we're tracking that. So, um, but what a lot of places have done is, like, you know, we have a lot of community partners and we, um, once everyone gets an OD man, you know, we're someone that can send out the spike alerts. And so we've already got a survey set up for organizations and people to say that they want the spike alert. Okay. And so what would happen is that, you know, you put your phone number into that. You could be anybody or a community organization and it just goes out. So the second that we know that there's a spike alert, it alerts, it goes out to everyone that wanted that information. And so if it goes out to a community-based service or like a treatment provider, um, and someone had, you know, opted into text messaging at that treatment provider, then they would be able to receive that text message. And the same, you know, that might be something, you know, maybe in the future at jails, you know, they opt in to receive something like that as well. And so that would be the way, that's the way that we're trying to look at doing, You're doing that. that now. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to, we don't have enough providers on ODMAP for it to really hit what we need it to hit. So, you know, if we receive that there's a bad batch, there's a tainted batch, or like there's a bunch of counterfeit pills and what they look like, we send that out to all of our community organizations so that they can tell the people that they're serving that that's happening. But eventually, when everyone gets onto ODMAP, hopefully, then we can just automate that to where it really just goes out when that happens. 
Well, I think so. That's that's a great maybe call to action is to the degree that you know we're looking at at EMS, fire, mm-hmm. community paramedicine, really as kind of three broad groups mm-hmm. of providers in your community. Um, would that be your call to action to them? Is on the one hand, you know. On the one hand, how can they leverage your integration desire, right? The, mm-hmm. the, I think I, I'd really like to hear you speak to that. You may kind of kind of glossed over this idea that community paramedicine, community health workers can work together. Um, I have you've told me in, in very passionate terms that like this is a very rich possibility for mm-hmm. collaboration. So if if you are going to speak to these folks directly, which you are quite literally, mm-hmm. and say this is what we need in order for us to be able to help us help you. Or how how can they engage with you? You've got folks across a broad group, group and there are going to be others in Kentucky and others in your neighboring states who say, "Wow, this is a model." Um, how do they? How how would you want folks to best engage with you so you do reach that critical mass and that you can share information safely but actionably? What would you say? So, I think that really the start on anything is being at the table. Okay, so one of the reasons that we are successful is what we do is we invite lots of people to the table and lots of people do come. There are, you know, sectors that aren't there as often as they should be or aren't necessarily at the table, but it's not for lack of trying. Um, But that's how we know what the needs are, and that's how we know what the solutions are, and that's how we know how we can work together. And so um, that's what I would say to anyone that is interested in, like, pursuing a CHW program or working with a CHW program or working with other community-based organizations and developing a system that works in your community is, you know, find out where your health coalitions are because almost all of your communities probably have a health coalition of some sort. And um, some of the ways that you can find out where those are, most of your hospitals are going to have some sort of community health department. If they're a nonprofit, it's pretty much they've got to. So that person will typically know where some of the people are that work on the health coalition. Your health departments might know where they're at. Um, your behavioral health centers, like your, um, you know, your behavioral health substance use disorder centers, they will maybe have a pause. Your office of drug control policy. You know, there's a lot of different places that you can get in contact and say, where are the coalitions in my area, and how do I get at the table? Because uh-huh. you probably have a program that can cohesively and comprehensively work with programs that are out there. And so that really is one of the things, like, you know, there's not, there's only one community paramedicine program in Western Kentucky, and we've actually struggled to work with them. And so, but it is kind of that base of what, you know, we wanted to talk about originally, is that it's not competitive, it's not duplicative. We can work together, and we can comprehensively address this as long as we're working together. And so with the substance use and the opioid use disorder, um, one of our recovery centers, Turning Point, you know, they've got a quick response team. And the way that works is they work directly with law enforcement because law enforcement, they're not tied by HIPAA. There is no confidentiality there. So if they respond to an overdose and they know the name and all of that to the person, they can call the recovery center and say, hey, uh, we were at this address with this person. They've overdosed so that they can schedule a time to show back up with the law enforcement officer and say, we have resources for you. Um, and one of the things that, you know, that we've kind of pushed with EMS, too, is, you know, in the state of Kentucky, your state may be different. Um, you know, Narcan, although it is, you know, a prescription medication, diversion is expected and, you know, promoted, you know. So, um, and anyone in the state of Kentucky, there is not a certification to be a Narcan trainer. There is nothing like that. And so Narcan can be given to one person and then given to someone else. 
And so one of the things, you know, if you respond to an overdose, you know that their friends and family are going to see them overdose again. Or, you know, maybe they use drugs as well. Um, why not provide Narcan or resources on how to get Narcan to those people? Okay, now, did you say, I, heard, I thought I heard you gloss over or say quickly that you've struggled to work with the CP program? We have struggled to work tell with me, Tell me more. Um, so there is a community paramedicine program in our area, and we've um, they're you know housed within a hospital that is not one of our partner hospitals at this time. Um, and we have reached out over and over and over again, and um, there's really a lack of understanding of a community health worker program and a um, not willingness to understand it. Where it's like, well, we can do everything, and we don't need this additional help. But it's why can't we should be working together so that you can do what you do best, and we can do what we do best, and we comprehensively. So we actually we had this problem with home health originally, to where it was like, well, you know, they already have home health, do so they need a community health worker program? It's like they do because it's different. So you can focus on what you're focusing on, and now we have a great relationship. I mean, it's fantastic. And it just took the time for two people to come to the table and say, this is what we do, this is what we do. But you have to be willing to listen. Well, so, so yeah, let, let's dig in on that. Again, that, that to me, that Rosetta Stone concept is translational concept. It was, mm-hmm. I, mean, uh, I, I recently published a, an article referencing a, a discussion at the South Carolina uh, EMS Symposium back in March, where a gentleman named Thornton Kirby, is the president, shout out to him, president of the South Carolina Hospital Association, got up and gave a talk, and I don't think in my entire career I've ever gone up to somebody afterwards and said, that was the perfect talk. Uh, It was tremendous. And really the theme was this. EMS likes to call itself the redheaded stepchild, and that's the nice way of putting it, of the healthcare system. And, you know, no one cares, we get left out, People think of us as lower. It's kind of this built-in inferiority complex. Um, and I don't remember if it was me or someone else that asked this gentleman about that and sort of how to engage in the discussions with hospitals, community partners, community health worker programs, et cetera, et cetera, when you're seen as less than. And what this fellow said is, how do you think nurses feel relative to doctors? Right? How do you think doctors feel relative to insurance companies? Right? And it was kind of this sense of everybody hates it. It sucks for everybody. And everybody kind of feels like they're not getting as much as they want, as fast as they want, as uh, you know, the ball is never moving as far as they hope they're going to throw it. And, and so don't feel bad because there's misery in numbers, right, or whatever it is. Like, misery loves company. And, and so everybody's kind of in the same boat. And so... I think it is a tremendous thing to hear that you are basically saying we need each other, right? We do. And so, so talk because again, like, tell me about. I have one last question. I want to make sure we get to. But what is you know when when you when you sit down with folks and say, here's what we do, here's what you do. Let's all hold hands and do it together. Mm-hmm. What is, you mentioned in this group that they, you've struggled with one, mm-hmm. which I find interesting because again, I think the, the reaction that most places would probably say is, oh my God, she's talking to me. This is great, right? So how, how do they approach you? Do you, should they, do, should EMS agencies take, or mobile medical agencies 
take away from your words today the lesson that they need to be proactive? Or is it uh, the idea that there are already there folks kind of with their ears out saying, we're listening for you. If you're speaking up and we're not hearing you, we're all willing. So let's figure out where things are getting lost in translation. So what's the mechanism? Is it you to them, them to you? It, it, really, it really needs to be two ways because um, you know, we're constantly saying, hey, reach out to us, reach out to us. And we've had really good responses with EMS and fire departments and everything like that and law enforcement with our opioid program. We've had great responses with that. Um, but it really is something where it's like it's a, it's a two-way street. So if there's a call of action, you know, come, help, be part of it, listen to people saying, reach out to us, reach out to us, and then come to the table. And also on that flip side of it is, you know, a lot of people be like, well, that organization doesn't do anything for me, or, you know, you're not including us. And it's like, but are you at the table? How do we know what you need if you're not there saying, this is what I need? How do you carve carve out your respective duties? So like if they were to say, again, using this other example, this other program as an example, so we can do everything. If you were to say, what are your needs? What are your needs that, I know, again, I have my view of kind of what mobile medicine does best. But in your view, if you were to have an EMS agency, a fire department, uh, a community paramedicine program that already exists that comes to you and says, how can we help you? How can we help you and in the, in the same process advance our shared mission? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be the last question we get to in a second. But what are your needs? that you think they can help you fill, that you know right now, if they can show up, you would have a task for them to do. So um, with the CHW program, you know, CHWs are, they are from the community, they are not coming from a position of authority. And so even if, you know, community paramedicine, EMS feels less than, for a lot of the people that we serve, they are a position of authority. Okay, so you're not going to get that level of rapport. You're not going to get that level of honesty um, that you're going to get with someone where they feel more like it's a peer and they can share an experience and they can share what's going on. So that's part of what we can help offer to the EMS is we have this rapport. They will tell us things and then we can share that with their other providers and say they're struggling with this. They're struggling with that. They don't understand what you're saying about this. You know, and really bring that in. And we don't do anything medical. And so when you go to, like, a readmission risk, you know, that first, like, eight days or so, it's mostly going to be medical is why they've been readmitted. Everything after that is probably going to be more of a social determinant of health need. You know, community paramedicine is able to help with some of those medical needs. So right there is where the fit is great. You know, because we can have our meeting, we can figure out what they're worried about, work with the community paramedicine and say they're worried about this, this, and this. Can we get them into your program as well, even if they hadn't been initially referred, so that you can see them, you can help them with that medical at their home or whatnot, and then we can continue to help with the social determinants. And maybe you know of a resource that we don't know of, and maybe we know of a resource that you don't know of, and then we're all growing our network, we're all growing our resources, and we just have more partnerships to leverage. And... Um, I mean, that's really what's important to do it. And, you know, I think also coming back to the conversation of how do people get in touch, how do people, you know, almost have that value and, and express that value is that we've been very um, lucky that we are tracking our data. So we use MetaView um, and EPCR, and we use it to track our data. And we use it a little bit different than maybe an EMS uses it. So uh, EMS, I know, um, has maybe used it as needs, where we use it as outcomes. 
So we take our, our parts and our categories, our subcategories, our social determinants, and we use it as an outcome. So we're working with someone on housing. We're working with someone on financial assistance. And so then we're able to demonstrate, hey, not only did these people need this, we addressed it. And our program, you know, has found food for 500 and something people, or our program has done this for this many people. And I think that that helps to really show really what encompasses a program and how we're working it and the needs in our community, because then that also shows the needs of your community. Because you have all of these people in this one little aspect that need all of these things. Do we have the resources to fit that? You know, we know we know that they need this, but we're unable to help it. That's where maybe another program comes into play. So it's, it sounds like what you're basically saying is, and I, I had a similar conversation yesterday. It was so exciting. Folks of such great passion with clear abilities and they know they can make an impact. And one of the challenges that they are finding in their community is we know the needs are here, but we can't really find them. Like, it's like, it's kind of like they see the smoke, they want to find the fire, right? Mm -hmm. You know there's a fire somewhere, but again, unless a, a patient is either referred in and becomes a client, right? Or mm -hmm. they are so frequently in the system that it becomes obvious that they have a problem, mm -hmm. right? They know they're there, they're seeing the evidence of the challenges, but they're, they're kind of struggling to verbalize, here is the impact that we can make. Mm -hmm. And I, what I've been hearing from you as kind of a, a thesis statement of today is that's really what a community health worker program as a partner can do, is mm -hmm. to say, these are the needs. Mm -hmm. Plug yourself in. Yeah. Right? And, and that is, you're almost like a matchmaker. Um, is that and a fair summary? Yes, and that's what we do as our coalition because, you know, we have lots of initiatives, but we can't we can't do everything. There's no possible way for us to do everything. So if we're having conversations and we're having meetings and we hear that there's a need here and someone in a different meeting said that they're doing this, it's like that lines up. We're going to we're going to connect you with each other because even if awesome. we're not involved, we want all of our partners to work together so that we're using our resources to the best of our ability and we're all growing comprehensively. And so we try to make as many connections for our partners as possible if we know about your need. Awesome. All right, last question on the way out because this is the perfect capstone given everything you've said and that summary of, you know, this is what a CHW program can do to help you be the best that you can be. Mm -hmm. You speak with extraordinary passion. You mentioned that the opioid program is your baby. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and just clearly are excited about this. You mentioned you, you know, you've got multiple hats that you wear, so you're clearly busy. What is the source of your passion for this type of work? Why have you and your team taken this so personally on yourselves? Obviously, you're members of the community, but but kind of what what makes you what makes this uh, a, a driver of you waking up every day, and and why are you so excited to reach out to these different participants? And tell me about how that makes you tick. Because it clearly does. Well, I guess it's really just the idea that everyone's a person. I mean, that's what it personally is for me, is that we're all people. We all have needs. We all have, you know, down moments and up moments. And we lack resources. And there's just so much out there. Um, and so we just need to know how to leverage our partnerships. I mean, really, that's what it comes down for to okay. me, is that we're all people. And we should be helping each other. And we... That's, I mean, that's really it. <laughs> I, look, I can, again, I can't think of a better capstone to the message. Uh, you know, we, we, mobile medicine is, there are so many wonderful analogies. People ask me all the time, like, why, 
how I got into this. I'm not a medic. I'm not a firefighter. Right? I'm a technologist. But I, I look at the world in a very similar fashion the way you just described, but I do it through a lens of data, right? Zeros yeah. and ones. And sort of ultimately, can I represent you as the what's the digital version of you, I guess, is sort of the, the cliche that it becomes. Um, but it's really the question of who needs to know about it? Because if we can connect those dots, we can improve, you know, the we can improve your holistic experience. Um, I think the, the thing that's so remarkable about this, this discipline, profession, et cetera, um, is you're all such wonderful people. It's, it's honestly, it's a wonderful, it's so inspiring to know that there are so many folks here who are doing exactly what you're trying to do with a similar type of mission. They just don't know how to find each other. Um, and, and so that's really why I think I keep asking this question and I think you've given so much today. Um, wisdom is really the right word for what you've described. It's really this idea of it, it does take work to find mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. Um, but once you find each other, these are the good people. It's like the good people coming together with the good people. You're going to figure out how you make each other better. Um, Yes, and you're going to go through forming and storming and norming and all of that, you know, because even when you find each other, there's going to be things that you don't agree on, like, you know, and things that you want to see this way and they want to see that way. And it's really about coming to terms with each other and saying we're comfortable in this relationship and we're going to figure out what to do in our next steps and look at our program side by side and see what we need. But even when you start making those relationships, expect some storming it's gonna happen it's just about getting to the other side and then that's where the brilliance is right the, the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow that comes after the storm yes uh, uh caitlin this has been wonderful thank you and to everybody watching thank you so much i'm glad this will live on in posterity uh thank you to the journal of ems as always uh, jeff we appreciate you uh there is uh clearly much to take away from this and i i, I look forward to finding out how many people have found the the pieces to make their local programs work through listening to Caitlin's words and, and reaching out to their local community partners. So, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be able to share our work. Thank you guys. Such a pleasure. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.